Oh my goodness. I don't think it's something people think about at all. There have been so many times where I've had to go to work in pain and it is one of the most, it, it's like, I'm about to tear up thinking about it, but it is, it's so, so hard because when you are in the pain, it's, it never goes away. It's around the clock pain until it's finally, until it finally reaches a place where it's run its course. But to have to get up, take a shower, get dressed, get in the car, drive to work, go to work, sit there for eight hours. It is extremely exhausting. It's extremely draining. It is one of the hardest things that I have to do. Hi everyone, welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn more about how to navigate the healthcare system and how to take care of your health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston-Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Our guest today is Ms. Pam Moore. Pam is a dynamic and accomplished young woman who happens to be a sickle cell disease advocate and lives in Maryland. Today in the cafe, we discuss what it is like to live with sickle cell disease, her transition from pediatric to adult care, and how her pregnancy motivated her to start a YouTube channel. Let's get straight to the episode. Hi, Pam. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure. Would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? Yes. My name is Pam, and I am an advocate for sickle cell disease. I was diagnosed with sickle cell disease as a baby, and I am a native of Maryland, and I have a eight-year-old daughter. So could you tell us a little bit about sickle cell and then what was the process of getting diagnosed? Sure. So sickle cell disease, it's a condition that a person is born with. It's genetically inherited from a person's parents. So that's the only way that a person can get it. So what happens is a parent has to have what is called the sickle cell trait. Both parents have to actually have the trait in order for the child to end up with the disease. However, it's not hundred percent that the child will get the disease. So in my case, for example, I have three other siblings who I share the same parents and I was the only one who inherited the actual disease. And I have a brother who has the trait. So a little bit more about sickle cell disease. People with sickle cell, they have a mutation in their red blood cells that causes the blood cells to be shaped like a sickle, which is where the name sickle cell comes from. So if you think about maybe the shape of a banana, if you're not familiar with a sickle, think about the shape of a banana. And that's how people with sickle cell, their red blood cells are shaped versus a normal person's red blood cells are shaped like a donut. And so that donut shape allows the red blood cells to easily move through the blood vessels. And red blood cells are very important because they're carrying oxygen to the entire body. That's their job is to carry oxygen. Um, with sickle cell, by the sickle by the cells being sickled, they're not able to move through the blood vessels as smoothly, and so they will get stuck oftentimes, and they don't deliver as much oxygen. So it causes a disruption of blood flow and oxygen to certain parts of the body, and that's really what causes the all the health complications that come along with having the disease. The way, that, the way that a person can find out if they have the disease is by getting a blood test and you're able to find out if you have 
um, sickle cell disease or sickle cell trait, they have blood tests now that you can get very easily, readily available to find out. So at nine months old, um, my parents took me to the emergency room because I was crying more than usual. And so I wasn't the type of baby that really cried a lot. I was pretty calm and reserved. (laughs) And so my mom felt like something was wrong because I was crying like uncontrollably for a long period of time. When they took me to the emergency room and some blood tests were run, that's how I was diagnosed with it. That's really interesting. I'm glad that they're screening for it everywhere now. So Mm -hmm. what was it like growing up? With sickle cell. I'll talk a little bit about growing up with sickle cell and then I'll talk a little bit about living with sickle cell as an adult because it is a stark difference. And the reason why is because when you're a child, you're a child, you're a kid, you're pretty carefree. So some of the challenges that come along with sickle cell are going to be different as you enter adulthood. So as a child, it was it was a lot of just wondering what was going on. It wasn't really explained to me. I guess because I was a child, maybe at a way I could understand what was happening. And I always wondered why I was in pain, why I was going through these just sporadic episodes of pain. And so it felt very isolated because, like I said, none of my other siblings had sickle cell. So I wondered what happened to me. Why am I the only one going through this? And then there was periods of time where I would be in the hospital where I had to grow up quicker than the normal child. Sometimes I would be in the hospital and my parents couldn't always be there around the clock because they had other children to care for. So, you know, I spent a lot of time like by myself and having to just be okay with that. Every now and again, I might have someone in the room with me, another child who we would share a room and we would make friends with each other. But as a child, being in the hospital was fun. If, if I wasn't in excruciating pain, the staff and the doctors and nurses, they made it a very fun experience. They bought you games and books and you got all the snacks you wanted. So for me, it was kind of like, oh, wow, this is different from my experience at home. Because at home, I have my siblings and you have anything of your own. You have to share everything. <laughs> so I'm like, I have my own TV here. I can order my own food if I want a burger. So it was a getaway at times. But I was missing school and you have to, you know, go back to school and kind of catch up. Um, We had a program when I was in school where we would have a person go to the school and bring the work to me if I was in the hospital. But then there were other times where if I didn't go to the hospital, I would just be at home and I felt as if I was missing out on things. Sometimes I would miss going to different events. And a lot of times I couldn't do what other children do. I couldn't go swimming in like really cold water. I couldn't really overexert myself. So it came with limitations with you know, that many children don't really understand. Is the primary reason for hospitalization the pain? So yes, when I was describing sickle cell and what it is, I think one of the major complications that I wanted to talk about was the pain. So there are pain crises or episode that come about just out of the blue. So one moment I could be sitting here just talking with you and I would be completely fine. And then maybe an hour later, I may be in excruciating pain, both in the bed, pulling my hair out because of this pain. So that is the number one reason why people with sickle cell present to the emergency room is because of the pain. So, and if you think about what they call it, a crisis. It's a crisis because the pain is that excruciating. So are you familiar with X-Men? Yes. 
Oh, X-Men movie. Okay. So I like to say that living with sickle cell is like being an X-Men. And the reason why is because on the surface, you look at this person, they look normal. You can't tell that they have this mutation that causes them to be a mutant. And so generally speaking, they're able to live normal lives until they have this mutation that manifests itself. And then they're looked at as this crazy thing, the stigma, and they can either take it one or two ways. It can either be something that they use for good or for bad. And so with sickle cell, we have this mutation of our red blood cells that on the surface, if you look at me, you wouldn't know. But once I have a pain crisis, um, then I turn into this person that has like the superpower and I'm able to deal with this excruciating pain. And I'm able to actually from the experience become very strong, very resilient. And so I like to use that to visualize what it's like. And it's also like an invisible thing. Pain is not something that you can see, and it's not something that can be measured with a medical test. And so it's almost like something that exists invisible. It's like other conditions, you can see a person might have a certain deformity, or they may have something where whatever's going on in them will manifest physically. And so it's easier to be sensitive towards that type of, of thing. But when it's pain, it's something that only that person can really express to you how it feels and what's going on. So as an adult living with sickle cell, the challenges definitely shift to the point where there are actually programs that are centered directly for transitioning children, or I guess you can say adolescents to adulthood because the care is different. So when generally everyone loves children, children are cute, they're innocent, and so there's a lot more sensitivity. But once you become an adult, you're thrown out there into, I guess, the real world to, to deal with your sickle cell. So presenting to the emergency room as an adult is a completely different experience than presenting as a child. They, you have to wait your turn, basically. But as a child, nobody wants to see a child in pain. So they're immediately getting you back and getting you comfortable. But as an adult, you can sit in the emergency room in pain for hours on end before anyone comes to administer any medicine to you. It no longer feels like a getaway as an adult. No, it no longer feels like a getaway. It feels feels like something that you want to avoid at all costs. Going to the emergency room is, for me, it's my last resort. And that's also some of the friends I have who have sickle cell. It's the same sentiment. It's something that we do at the very last resort. Going to the hospital now is something that is scary. So another word I I would use to live with sickle cell is fearful. Because when you're in that type of pain, you're very vulnerable. And it puts you in a place of desperation. And when you're going to the emergency room, For me, it's because I've done everything that I could do at home or on my own to manage the pain, to get it to a level of tolerance. And if I'm going to the emergency room, it's because I am desperate. So it's not a place that I want to go to. It's like, it's not my first choice to go to, even though once you go to the emergency room, they are able to get the pain level managed to a tolerable rate for you a lot quicker than you're really able to do at home. So ideally, it would be great if 
every time I'm in a pain crisis that I could go to the emergency room, but it's something that I choose not to do because of the experiences that I've had in emergency rooms. And because it's, it's an anxiety of what am I going to face when I get there? Yeah. And I, I would love for you to talk more about some of what you face when you get there. But a thought that I had is by delaying, are you potentially causing yourself harm? Right. There is that potential. The quicker that you're able to attack the pain when it's, let's say, for instance, uh, at a 10, the, the less likely it is to last for a long period of time. So yes, essentially, you run the risk of being in pain longer when you delay going to the emergency room. But it's that bad <laughs> that sometimes it's just more comfortable to not go because at least you don't have to deal with you know, the stigma. You don't have to deal with waiting in an uncomfortable wheelchair or sitting in a lobby where people are staring at you wondering what is wrong with you. It's funny to me sometimes when I go to the emergency room and I'm visibly in pain, I'm crying, sometimes I'm moaning and people are looking at me like there's something wrong with me. I'm not going to be sitting looking like I'm okay because I'm not okay. And that always you know, bothered me. I always felt as if I had to go to the emergency room and kind of put on a face because of the way other people are looking or even the staff are looking at me. Yeah. That's really fascinating. So tell mm-hmm. me a little bit more about some of the things that you encounter at the emergency room that make you not want to go. I had one time that I went to the um, emergency room. Now, this particular crisis, I had my mom with me. I remember it very well because it was probably one of the worst crises that I've had in my adulthood. The amount of pain, it was it was unbelievable. And so I had a nurse tell me that if I, I needed to learn to control myself. She said those words to me. She was telling me I needed to you know, quiet down because I was literally screaming. You've probably seen like these theatrical things on the movies, or maybe if you've ever witnessed anyone have a baby, it was like that. And I was, I was, my actions and my reaction from the pain, you could tell that I was in a lot of pain and I'm usually able to hold that in. But this particular time I wasn't able to. And she said that to me. And at that time, I didn't have the strength to really address her or to address what she had said, but I remember her saying it and it made me feel helpless and it made me feel hopeless because I'm like, if this is the place I'm coming to get help, if this is what a person is telling me who works here, what hope do I really have? And so those experiences like that is what have driven me to really try to handle things on my own as much as possible. There's dozens of examples across the sickle cell community of just things that are undertones when you're going to the hospital, when you're presenting to the emergency room. Because a lot of times I live in the inner city and the hospital where I usually go is in the inner city. And a lot of times people from the inner city will go to this hospital and they may be exaggerating what they're going through. There is a such thing as drug seeking. And sometimes patients with sickle cell are lumped into that category because the only thing that can be given to us to manage the pain are high doses of uh, opioids, morphine, Dilaudid, 
And those types of things, it does give a certain effect when you, when you give it to a person, but we can't control that. We didn't manufacture the drugs to feel that way or to give that type of effect. We are just trying to get some relief from the pain. And so oftentimes with the opioid crisis, it's made it more difficult to present to the ER and not be, you know, termed a certain way or looked at a certain way or just the doubt that's there that you're not really in as much pain as you're saying you are. And I think that's that's something we hear fairly well commonly that people also feel like minorities can handle more pain than others mm-hmm. and stuff like that. <laughs> you're talking and I'm thinking, well, nobody should be. I guess, doubted or second guessed, but I'd like to hope that even like, if that's the place you normally go, they have you on file as like someone who has sickle cell that I almost wish it would be more expedient for you. Okay. Well, we know Pam, Pam presents periodically, like let's, let's get her the help she needs quickly. We have no reason to doubt her. That that would be nice. (laughs) Yeah. And and I, I think that it's hit or miss. There have been situations or instances where Years ago, when I first became, when I first transitioned into adult care, where my hematologist would say, hey, call me if you need to go to the emergency room, call me ahead of time. I'll talk to the emergency room people on staff. So I have had instances like that, but it is hit or miss because the emergency room staff, they they don't always have to oblige to what your hematologist or primary care doctor is, is telling them. But Yeah, it really comes with a good comprehensive team of people. And the hospital that I do go to, there is something called an infusion center there, which has made things better for sickle cell care because at the infusion center, it's the same people there. With an emergency room, you're seeing different people at different times. But with the infusion center, it is a way that people can become familiar with you and familiar with your patterns and know your history. So that's been a a really big help for the sickle cell community in the area where I live is that infusion center. When you go to the ER and you're waiting, you're in lots of pain, do you get something in the meanwhile, like until your turn comes when they can deal with you fully? Probably last year is the last time I've into the ER, but I have heard that since the pandemic, there has been instances where people are being given things while they're waiting in the lobby because of some changes. But aside from that, I've never experienced getting anything in the lobby because the thought is when you are administered that type of pain medication through an IV, you need to be monitored. So your heart rate needs to be monitored and your vitals need to be monitored um, to make sure your body is not having a negative reaction. And so that is what I understand to be the reason why they will not give you anything in the lobby um, while you're waiting. So typically, no, not that hasn't been my experience. So you're, you're telling me more about like what it's like to manage this illness as an adult. And you mentioned that you were pregnant. So how was that like? Did that change anything for you? Did it make the pain worse? My first six months of carrying my daughter, I didn't have any significant issues. It's at that six month mark is when things started to become more challenging. And I think the reason for that from what was explained to me is because with sickle cell disease, you don't have as much blood flow. 
And when you're carrying a baby, a lot of your blood flow is going towards um, the creation of, you know, the baby. And that was causing me to have a lot of crises, pain crises. And there was no triggers. With sickle cell, there are triggers that can bring on a crisis. Some of the triggers are cold weather, very hot weather, overexertion physically, stress. So there, there are usually things that can bring upon a, a crisis. When I was pregnant, there were no triggers. I would just get a pain crisis just out of nowhere. And it was very unusual for, for me for that to happen. Usually something would bring it on. And because I was carrying my daughter, my body was working overtime trying to supply the blood to her, supply the blood with me. And it was causing a lot of crises towards the end. That is, I think, the the biggest thing that I dealt with. And then also, I ended up having my daughter about, I was 36 weeks. So she came a little early, which is something that is common with um, sickle cell. And I was actually put on to bed rest a week before she came. I was told that I needed to sleep on my left side of the body because when you sleep on your left side, it's increased blood flow. And my doctor noticed her growth was a little behind. And so when she was born, when my daughter was born, she was a little shy of five pounds. And that was a result of her coming early and then also a result of her having decreased blood flow to help with her formation. But she ended up um, being a healthy baby. And so, but those are some of the things that, <laughs> yeah, she she doesn't have sickle cell disease. She does have the trait, but yeah, she ended up um, being born with five pounds and she stayed in the NICU for about four days. But other than that, she was completely fine by by what, maybe a month, she looked like a nice little plump little baby. When I actually went into delivery of my my child, it's funny because everyone thought, oh, you have sickle cell. You've been dealing with pain all your life. You are just going to knock this labor delivery out of the park because you have this high tolerance for pain. And that was not the case. <laughs> that was not the case. Yes, yeah, sickle cell pain is a lot is a lot different from labor and delivery, whereas the pain is they both are really hard to deal with, but at least with sickle cell pain, I'm able to get some type of relief through an IV. But when I was having my daughter, I opted for an epidural, but it didn't work. It didn't work. And so what I was told was, and I opted for it pretty late in the game. I I had been in labor for about a day because I was determined to try and do it naturally. So it was about a day I was in labor and active labor and I just was not progressing. And so I I was like, I can't take this anymore. I was about one and a half centimeter. And a day later, I was still just one and a half centimeter. At that point, I was exhausted. I hadn't eaten. I hadn't slept. And so I opted for the epidural. And so when they gave it to me, I was so looking forward to having some relief and just being able to rest a little bit from just being in labor. And the anesthesiologist, they gave me the epidural and they said, okay, in about 15 minutes, you should feel a whole lot better. And I'm like, okay, all right, great. So 15 minutes came and went and I wasn't feeling any different. And so another 15 minutes went by. And so I let my mom know. I said, hey, could you get them? Because this is not working. So they come back and they check everything. And they're like, it's in, everything's incorrectly. 
And so they're looking baffled and a little while they said, we're going to increase the dosage. And I'm like, okay. Okay, so the only thing that did was make me a little drowsy, but it didn't stop the pain at all. And so they came to the conclusion that the epidural did not work because of my sickle cell disease. And so that's one of my biggest takeaways from being pregnant with sickle cell. And I've actually heard that from other women that their epidurals did not. Um, so yeah, it, it did provide some numbing for when I had to push but I could still feel all the contractions, which is what the epidural is supposed to help with. But yeah, definitely with the sickle cell, I I had to have the oxygen and I ended up having to get a blood transfusion actually while I was in labor um, because my daughter's dead. And I found this out later. (laughs) He told me later that he actually went and talked to the doctors and said, she's about to be losing a lot of blood and she has sickle cell. Is she going to be okay? Because usually because we don't always have a high count of blood as it is, for us to lose this additional blood is, is a risk for crisis. So when I have my cycle every month, I'm at a higher risk for crisis because I'm losing blood. And so they actually did give me a couple units of blood while I was in labor as well. That's awesome. So that was yeah. him thinking ahead and advocating for you as needed. Yeah, I was mad at the time that I, they were giving me blood because I had the oxygen, I had the IV, then they wanted to give me blood in the other arm. And here I am, I'm trying to have this experience right now where I'm having, giving birth to a baby yeah. and you guys are really cramping my style. Like this is not <laughs> what I envisioned. But uh, yeah, he told me after the fact, I guess he was a little too scared to tell me the day of <laughs> that it was his idea. Yeah. Well, it was his idea. Yeah. But I guess they wouldn't have done it if they didn't agree that, hey, this guy is onto something. So I wonder how come they didn't think of it before he raised it? That's a good point. I think with sickle cell, that's another thing. Even though it's the same disease, it really presents itself in people in very different ways. Mm -hmm. And so maybe they have seen women with sickle cell have babies and not have to have transfusions. And so maybe this was something that they said, well, let's just, just be extra sure, you know, extra careful since he's bringing it up, but maybe that's not the norm. And I don't think there's actually a lot of information out there or research out there about pregnancy and sickle cell and labor. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start making videos to document my experience, because when I did become pregnant, I, I started looking for other women who I could, you know, pick from and just see what their experiences were like. And I couldn't find any. I didn't find any YouTube videos, no blogs, nothing. And so I said, all right, I'll document my process. So they were, a lot of people have reached out to me, just very thankful for documenting that process. So that was my main motivation behind um, starting that YouTube channel process. That's wonderful. So the YouTube channel you're talking about is called Advocate for Sickle Cell. And you started Mm -hmm. it to document your pregnancy, but now you do other things. Is that correct? So I, I wanted to start something in general. So before I became pregnant, I may have done one or two videos about sickle cell, but I wasn't consistent. And so when I became pregnant, I was like, okay, well, this is some content that I can put out there that that will have me upload consistently. And so from that, when I saw the feedback, the fact that there is a need out there for people to see someone else who's relatable, who's going through the same experience as them, because a sickle cell in, in the United States is considered a rare disease. So you may go your whole life not meeting anyone else who has sickle cell 
unless you are actively putting yourself in a position where you can meet those people like going to support groups or going to events. But if you're not, you typically wouldn't meet anybody. So I saw that there was a need out there for that. So that's why I started the channel initially to share my experience. But yeah, the pregnancy gave me the motivation to start creating content on a regular basis. So tell us why you advocate or what you see as the benefit of advocating. I will say, I'll go back to my early 20s. There was a social worker who worked at the hospital that I went to, and she started having these support groups every month. And I would go and I would see that sometimes it would just be me there, or it would just be me and maybe one other person. And it was it was encouraging to me that this social worker was so passionate and she wasn't going to stop. So she kept having these support group meetings every month. And this these support groups usually took place in the evenings. So I'm sure it was times where she could have you know, been home or doing something else. And so I always made a point to attend the support groups because I felt as though if someone else is interested in this disease that I'm living with and she's not living with it, who am I not to actually show my support and not to be a part of it? And so I think that's really what spearheaded my attitude towards advocating. So that's one of the things, but also just seeing the um, disparities that exist with sickle cell disease in comparison to some other genetic diseases, seeing the need for increased education, increased awareness, increased funding where uh, research is concerned, increased treatment options, all of those things are reasons why I advocate for sickle cell. And then also, when I look back at how things were, let's say in the 50s or 60s, I have some older friends who are in their 50s, and they tell me how it was living with sickle cell when they were children. And then I compare it to how it was when I was a child. And things have really gotten better. I mean, even though things, they still need a lot of work. But if those people, if those community-based organizations did not do the work that they did, who knows if things would have gotten to where they are now. So I look at the work that was put in with the generations before me and see how it benefits me. And so I think about years from now, how much better things can be with advocacy and um, just using my experiences as, as a voice to help improve things. Beautifully said. What examples do you have of you advocating for yourself or where you can see that speaking up really helped you? Yes. Well, with the example that I talked about earlier with that one nurse who, who did make that comment, I did end up writing an email to the director of her department and I wrote an email, I explained what happened and I explained why that was unacceptable. And from that, having it in writing and explaining it in a way that was easy for anyone to understand and be able to see that, yes, this is an issue. They ended up saying, okay, they ended up apologizing to me. They ended up saying that they wouldn't be pairing this particular person with me again if I ever came into the clinic. She wouldn't be involved in my care. But I've found that at the time that something happens, it may not be the best time to address it because you're at a place, like I said, you're at a place of desperation and 
you're not always thinking clearly and you're not at a place where you can politically correctly speak to a person. So I've found that waiting until you're in a place where you feel better and you're able to speak with a clear mind and address the situation. But I never let a situation happen that I don't address. It's always going to be addressed. And I want to be known for that patient who, if, if something happens, it's going to be addressed in a way that's respectful, in a way that's productive. So that's usually one way that I've had to advocate for myself is by getting a paper and pen out, writing down my experience and sending it to the proper channels for it to be addressed. Another way is pushing back when I need to push back. When you go into the hospital, there's a list. So there's an approved list of medication for you that you're prescribed. So these medications are prescribed for you to use at home when you're trying to manage your pain at home or if you're discharged from the hospital and you need to continue your pain regimen, you can continue it at home. And I was speaking to my hematologist and I let her know that I wanted to add a particular medicine to my pain regimen for when I'm in pain. And the way that sickle cell presents for me, I am not in pain every day. So I have more what they call acute pain crisis that come on sporadically. They last for a certain amount of time. And then I'm able to be out of pain. But there are other people who have pain every single day, some level of pain, chronic pain every day. And this particular hematologist had been with me for a while and she knew my history. And I asked her if we could add a particular medicine to my pain regimen. And she suggested that I see a psychiatrist. That was her response to me. And a way that I a way that I advocated for myself in this situation is so I had a conversation with her and I wanted to know why that was her recommendation. And she explained to me the reasons. And so I just told her that I didn't think that I fit into that particular category or why she felt that was necessary. And so I just explained to her, we had a conversation. So I, I gave pushback. So I give pushback when I think it's necessary and try to do it in a way that is productive. And so in that particular case, she she agreed with me and I didn't end up having to see the psychiatrist, although I don't think there's anything wrong with seeing psychiatrists. But this in, in this particular scenario, I, I didn't agree with, with her, the conclusion that she came to. So yeah, so those are some of the ways that I advocate for myself. And then there are other ways that I advocate for the community as a whole so I, I volunteer with my community-based organization, which is the Maryland Sickle Cell Disease Association of America, which is, is how I came in contact with you. So I volunteer there. They put on events every year. They have a conference that they do every year. They have monthly su support groups. And we also have what is called Advocacy Day at our, at our CAP, and we speak to senators about sickle cell because one of the you know, biggest ways to affect change is legislation. Mm -hmm. And so that's the way that I advocate. And then the YouTube channel is another way of advocacy. Mm -hmm. And just, I'm also um, make myself available to speak on panels. So I've spoken on a few panels to, to doctors and nurses and um, social workers about what it's like living with sickle cell and trying to give them a patient's perspective, because oftentimes there is a disconnect between the medical staff and the patient, and I'm sure that exists not, not just with sickle cell. So given my you know, experience 
on panels and then also um, just writing to my uh, state senators and explaining to them what the issues are and what um, some of the resolutions could be. I think that's wonderful. I'm curious to like, I think it's amazing that you wrote the letter and that something happened as a result and that you aren't afraid to push back. (laughs) What do you tell your friends you know, it could be other fellow sickle cell warriors or others who say, well, Pam, I don't know if I can do that. Like, mm-hmm. I'm afraid. <laughs> what if they don't want to treat me again or, or something? What, what do you normally say? <laughs> well, yeah, I think what I would tell them is we have, as patients, we have rights. We have rights and we also have responsibilities. And I think I would encourage them to think about the next time that they have to go to the hospital and think about what the difference that it could have made if that issue was addressed the next time you have to go, because likely there will be another time and there is a possibility of something like that happening again. I think that if you address things in a certain way, there is less possibility of retaliation and I think as a patient as a whole, you have to have a brand about yourself. And I know that might sound strange, but so for example, every patient I think has a has a reputation that the staff has probably formed about them. Either this is a compliant patient or this is, is a patient that doesn't comply much, or this is a patient who comes in really often, or this patient barely comes in. And so I think when you have a, a brand about yourself that says, if something happens, this particular patient, it's going to be addressed. And it's not going to be addressed in a way that's disrespectful or unprofessional. I think that that gives you more leverage. But I I do understand the fear that could be behind that. But I think that that's why they have patient relations departments. And that's why they have things like that in place, because we're all humans. We all are flawed and things happen and people speak out of turn sometimes. And so there are systems and processes and procedures for that to address those things. How do you manage your appointments? I see my hematologist twice a year, and then I have to see my primary care doctor once a year, and then I see an ophthalmologist specialist once a year as well. And so the way that I manage it so it doesn't feel overwhelming is by just spacing it out. But I think for me, with those appointments, it's the sporadic appointments that become more overwhelming, the ones that are unplanned. So for me, the type of person I am, if something is planned and I'm able to know about it ahead of time, I'm able to manage it a lot better. But it's those unplanned visits to the ER or the infusion center that become overwhelming and that basically disrupt your entire life. Sometimes you need to call out of work and it can be days or weeks at a time. And then other times you may have plans with family or you may have plans to just do something and everything is railroaded once you're in this pain. I try to do a lot of preventative things holistically to prevent myself from having to go to the hospital or from even getting sick. One of the the monumental things that have changed um, the way sickle cell presents for me is when I decided to take a look at what I was eating and take a look at my lifestyle. And so when I did that is when I saw a drastic change in the way sickle cell presented for me. And so that was when I was in college and I was a senior in college and I was eating 
fast food like three times a week. And I actually made a schedule to eat fast food three times a week because I didn't think anything was wrong with it. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, one day I'm going to have Popeye's. On Wednesday, I'm going to have KFC. (laughs) And and that was my regimen. And and because I was scheduling things with my classes, with work, and I got really sick. And I, I remember passing out one day in my dorm. And once I got well, it's like, I just had this thought that was like, your diet, it's your diet that, that made you pass out like that because you don't have any nutrients, you're not taking care of yourself. So it was then where I really started to adapt a healthy, um, healthier diet and a healthier lifestyle. And that has made a huge difference with how many times I've had to go to the hospital in my care. Is there anything that you wish you knew before? It would definitely be the diet. <laughs> it would definitely be the fact that food is very powerful. Just having that information of how powerful food can be and helping to prevent pain crisis and helping to keep you well and how if you are well, you need to look at the body as a whole holistically and not just what's going on with the sickle cell. But if you are looking at the body holistically, it's going to help the sickle cell as a result. So I think that that definitely, hands down, without a doubt, would be what I would what I would have wanted to know earlier. In your interactions, maybe with with your friends or people you meet, your workmates, and um, I realize it's probably different for each category. But even like your your daughter, like how do you explain to them? Well, today's not a good day. I just can't participate <laughs> as I had intended. That's a good question. It's it's hard. It's it's very challenging because I do have a, a, a normal life, I guess you would call it. I have a full-time job. I'm a mommy. I'm a homeowner. I have bills. And so people see you functioning as a normal person. And so when they see you and you're in this pain and you're not okay, it's almost like, what happened? What's wrong with you? Like, what happened? And so with work, it's very difficult. I tend not to tell very many people at work what's going on with me just because there's not a lot of awareness. I think if it's something like asthma, that's a lot more known. People will say, oh, okay, I, okay, I get it. But if I say, well, I'm having a pain crisis, it's like, okay. So I kind of have to go into I have to start from the foundation and say, well, this is what sickle cell is. This is what happens. And so for me, it's easier not even to go into it with with people who I work with. But with family, it's different because these are people who are in my life and they're going to be in my life for a long time. And so I have a very supportive family. And so they know if I'm in pain, I will let them know I'm having a pain crisis. And most of the times I'm calling them saying, Hey, I need you to come over here. I need you to take me to the hospital. I'm not okay. Or I just need you to be on the phone with me and help and just talk to me while I'm going through this pain. Help me to take my mind off of it. Coach me through this. And, but the one thing I will say with family is usually there's a peak. So there is a peak of a sickle cell crisis where it's, it's the worst that it could be. And what happens is it gradually comes down. It's like gradually coming down a mountain. So day one, you may be at the peak of the mountain. And then day two, you may have come down a little bit, but you're still in pain. And then day three. So every day, a little bit of the pain goes away, but you're still in pain. 
But because you have this tolerance for this pain, you're able to maybe by day three, get up out the bed, maybe fend for yourself. And so they're thinking, oh, she's okay. She's better. And it's like, no, I'm still in pain. And so I'll get the questions. How are you feeling today? And so those questions are sometimes hard because when you're in pain, it's very mentally draining. And so for someone to keep asking you that, it's almost like a constant reminder that I'm still in pain and you don't understand. Like you don't, you don't get it that I'm still in this pain and how it's making me feel. So it's hard for both. I think for family and friends, it's hard on both ends. And so it's just, I think it comes with communication, communicating to them what kind of things help during a pain crisis or what kind of things are maybe not so helpful. And so that's one of the cha- one of the videos I have on my YouTube channel I made was about supporting a person in a crisis. Um, because I know that families are probably just as frantic as you are when they're seeing you in pain. And so one of the things I, I, I try to tell um, people who are supporting me is I need you to be the calm because I'm the storm right now. So if we're both the storm, like I need to see you calm so I can be calm. I don't need you running around frantic because I'm already going through this crisis. So you just want to fight fire with water and not with more fire in that situation. And you're awesome with analogies. Oh, thanks. First the X-Men and now this. And I'm glad you brought that up because the question that then came to my mind was, okay, how are you doing today? Might not be the best question, but what would be another thing that I can say that would convey that I care? Like what would be a better way to inquire? Yeah, that's a good question. Mm, Yeah, I think maybe saying, is there anything I can do to support you today? Is there something that you need today? And and asking someone how they're doing is a natural question. How are you feeling? It's a natural question. So it will take a conversation between you and the other person to communicate how that makes you feel. And it's not universal. I mean, you know, other people with sickle cell may not feel that way, but it's like, so my sister, for example, (laughs) she's so sweet and she's actually in school to be a nurse, but she is one of the culprits of this. She'll ask me every day, how are you feeling today? <laughs> and so I know that she means well, but it's just, uh, it's almost like just drilling it in even more. Cause I'm like, Oh God, I feel terrible, but I don't want to tell you I feel terrible because I just, I don't know. It's, it's weird. It, it pain does something to your your psyche and it almost makes you feel like you want to be left alone sometimes but you know that you need support but sometimes you don't want people to see you in that way and so i think just saying how can i support you today can we pray together is there something i can do to help take your mind off the pain is there something i can bring you to eat is there something you want to watch we can watch a show together to distract you so Something that if you're in a position to do that, something that person can tangibly feel or see that can help them. How long does a crisis typically last? It varies. So each crisis can be different. I've had some crises that will come on. And if I'm quick enough and I, I get to my pain medicine quick enough, I'm able to get it under control within a few hours. And I'm at a point where I'm like, okay. 
I can tolerate this. So the tricky thing about a pain crisis is it's a pain that it happens in your joints. So for example, if I have a pain crisis, let's say in my knee, even though the intensity of the pain may have simmered off, the, the knee is still sore. So it leaves a soreness in your joint that could last for days. That's the really the, the hard part. So your knee is something that you may not be able to bend it. You may not be able to walk on it. And so it's really the remnants of the pain crisis that is lasting for so long because the cells are still sickling. I've had some that last for three weeks, but it's not, you have to think, you have to think about it in the fact that the pain comes on like, like a rush, it comes on like a rush of wind pain. And then you have to do something to get that pain manageable. Once it's manageable, then you're on like a marathon where you're like, okay, every day I need to take this pain medicine to get it to a point where it finally simmers off and it's gone. Are there any popular myths or misconceptions that you would like to dispel as it relates to either sickle cell or people living with sickle cell? One popular one is that sickle cell is an African-American disease. And I understand where that myth comes from because it did originate in people of African and Middle Eastern descent. But because it is a genetic disease, as people, as cultures like mix and things like that, it becomes a disease that can really affect any race because it's genetic. And so Whereas maybe hundreds of years ago, when different races were in their different <laughs> respective continents, it may have just been, oh, a Middle Eastern or African disease. But, you know, here we are in 2021, that's, that's no longer the case. I think another one that I hear a lot is that people with sickle cell are lazy because we suffer from fatigue. So because our body is working to make a lot of red blood cells because our red blood cells, they don't last as long as a normal person. So our body is constantly working to make these red blood cells. And then also we, some of us suffer from anemia, which makes you tired. And so some people with sickle cell, they may be on disability because they're not able to work because of the way it presents in their body. So they could be looked at as lazy or unmotivated but it's really the effects of the disease. And I guess the last one would be that sickle cell patients are drug seekers. That one is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> we, we are relief seekers. We're not just drug seekers. <laughs> so I like we that can't one. help it. Those, so, and yeah. you touched on like the disability thing. And that was something I found striking about one of the videos that I saw on your YouTube channel was it seemed to be mm -hmm. talking about how sickle cell is a little bit of an invisible disability sometimes and that you yeah. were like not sick enough to be eligible for disability, but you still had to like power through your day to get things done as a result. Oh my goodness. I don't think it's something people think about at all. There have been so many times where I've had to go to work in pain and it is one of the most, it, it's like, I'm about to tear up thinking about it, but it is, it's so, so hard because when you are in the pain, it's, it never goes away. It's around the clock pain until it's finally, until it finally reaches a place where it's run its course. But to have to get up, take a shower, 
get dressed, get in the car, drive to work, go to work, sit there for eight hours. It is extremely exhausting. It's extremely draining. It is one of the hardest things that I have to do. And when I think about the alternative, which is, well, I could stay home and I could use my sick days, but what happens if I get sick six months from now because my sick days are only accruing one day per month or one day per pay period? So I, I push myself because I think about the future. As we wind down, do you have any closing thoughts or final tips you want to share? Well, I guess the closing thought would be even with sickle cell being as hard and challenging as it is, it does leave people to be very strong and it leaves them to be very resilient. And it gives you some character traits that you may not have had had you not gone through these experiences of starting at a very young age. And so even though sickle cell can be very challenging, people with sickle cell are talented people. We're productive people. We have families. We, we have lives. And so there is, it's not something that has to be, it doesn't have to be a debilitating disease, I think is what I would like to leave and that there are, there are challenges, but I believe that with proper, you know, adjustments and things like that, that you can live a life that that's fulfilling. And also just to leave to maybe if there's health or medical professionals who may hear this or listen that we want to be partners with you in our care and we want to work with you. And we, we have, you see us at the hospital at our lowest point, and that is not the representation of our entire life. And so we have lives just like everyone else. And sickle cell is something that we were born with. We had no choice in the matter. So I just would love for people to be more sympathetic, more sensitive, and, and also I would like for people with sickle cell, I, you know, I like for them to have hope and to have encouragement and things like that. And so some of the tips I would leave would definitely be have to do with diet. So that's, I'm, I'm very big advocate and proponent of, of diet. I try to, I'm always preaching to my friends with sickle cell. Have you been eating your spinach? Have you been eating your beets? Have you been hydrating? So, because I've seen how that has drastically improved for me. So definitely doing your traditional medicine is fine and listening to your doctor and that's all responsible, but also just seeing what other kind of things you can do on your end. Some people even have done acupuncture and people do uh, massages and just maybe just looking at some holistic things. Just try it. Just maybe trying is no harm and trying is no hurt and just seeing if it works out for you. And if it doesn't, fine. And if it does, it, that's just a great benefit. So that would be one of my tips that's really, really changed a lot for me. Pam, I really enjoyed speaking with you. I learned right. so much. <laughs> Thank you for coming to the Good Health Cafe today and sharing your story. Oh, you're so welcome. I really enjoyed it myself. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. I learned so many new things from Pam sharing her experiences with us. I have linked her YouTube channel in the show notes if you want to check it out, and I highly encourage you to do so. As a reminder, please don't forget to check out the Good Health Candle Company if you are interested in scented soy candles free of parabens and harmful phthalates. 
And finally, please let me know what you think about the podcast. Are you enjoying it? Are there things that you want to hear more or less of? Do you have a favorite episode? Please fill out the contact form on thegoodhealthcafe.com to let me know what you think. I love hearing from you and I reply to every message. Until next time, see you in the cafe later. Bye!